Hi, I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. Welcome to Stages Podcast, where we're bringing creation and connection to center stage. You are the first to be this early. I'm a geek. I'm a geek. I'm never late. Never late. Never late. Never late. My kids busted me years ago when we were driving somewhere and they were like, we just figured it. They were like in middle school and, and younger. They said, we just figured it out. 15 minutes early is late for you. And I was like, yep. Today, we're going to be speaking to Sakina Jaffrey. I met Sakina years ago on set. This sounds very fancy, but we were on the set of House of Cards. It was the first time I was visiting my husband on the set. I remember being so preoccupied with what I should look like because I wanted to be up to snuff. And I'm sure I came off pretty uncomfortable until this little uh, amazing creature. All I can call her is this beautiful creature who literally came up to below my breasts and with all her force just said, oh, you're Sebastian's wife. And it was an embrace and it was a welcoming like I was not expecting. And that is Sakina. It's never quite what you're expecting. And it's so joyous and it fills the entire space. She does have quite a um, long resume, an interesting life, but I think you will find that she seems to always be much more interested in the person that she's sitting with. We are very grateful to have her here. I'm very excited to speak with her. Please welcome to Stages Podcast, Sakina Jaffrey. Sakina Jaffrey to stage, Sakina Jaffrey to stage. Hi, Sakina. Welcome. We're so happy you're here. So this is a little bit what our podcast is about. Things that we have learned from our art form that then always enhance the way we walk through the world, you know, in any stage of our life. Yeah. And in fact, when I was thinking about this um, podcast and thinking about Crossroads, And I was thinking, actually, most of my, I don't know if they've been crossroads because they're just like a certain point of evolution for me. And most of it comes from my parents coming in the 1950s, Indian parents, to be actors in New York. And from, I think my whole sort of trajectory was based on that, but in a very complicated way. And that was that um, they couldn't find work back then, right? So my mother had gone to Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. My father had studied and then he was coming. He went to Catholic University on a Fulbright or something. So they came here full of all this expectations and, you know, thinking I can be Brando, I can be all these things. And there wasn't really a place for them. So they had three kids and then they ended up getting divorced. And when I was two, my sister was four, my other sister was five. We literally got, my mother made the decision since my father had left to send us back to India because she didn't Mm -hmm. know how to cope. So what happened then was we literally, three little girls got sent on a plane alone to India. So we landed up in a foreign country. We were taken in by my aunt and uncle. My mother didn't come with us. And then when we came back to the States, my mother had been acting. 
that time. She was in these Merchant Ivory films. She won Berlin Best Actress for Berlin at the Berlin Film Festival. And my father had left to go to England. But we came back to mother, I didn't know, new father, stepfather, who was the, a violinist, first black violinist in the Philharmonic. We were told that we were going to be living in a skyscraper. So I had no idea what that meant. Like it literally would scrape the sky. I had no idea. So this sort of new city, new world. And I think everything that happened to me after that point was based on that. Because I think I kept my, I felt like I kept my family together by being this entertainer, by being the clown, because everything was so precarious because both of my parents were sort of pioneers pursuing my mother acting initially, and then she became a cookbook writer and my father in the Philharmonic. So there was this whole sort of life that happened, which wasn't traumatic clearly, but I think I've spent so much time running away from acting. There were moments where I kind of realized that and I tried to figure out what was going on with me because clearly I was an actor and then I was a dancer and I danced with Joffrey when I was a kid. I played all these characters at home to process the world, really, both to entertain, but also to process because my sisters and I were like three skinny little hairy Indian girls <laughs> who were like sort of just blow gone from this little life we had in Delhi to Greenwich Village, New York City, right? So I think what ended up happening is I when I was in high school, a family friend of ours, Wally Sean, had this play. My mother said she plays this character all the time. So I auditioned for it. I got, when I was, before, I think I'd just gotten into college, I had a play, I had an equity card, I had all this stuff. You know, it was amazing, but it also I kept on thinking, oh, but I'm not going to act. I'm not going to act because it was a traumatic part of acting, but both it had taken both my parents away. Mm-hmm. So when I went to college, I started everything but acting. I mean, I think I, I took like a set design class, but I didn't act. And I studied Chinese. I went to live in Taiwan for my junior year. And I came back afterwards and I still tried not to be an actor. I tried everything not to be an actor. And then I realized, who am I? And it's so different than most people who are like, I just have to be an actor. I just have to be an yeah. actor. But the, one of the things I thought was a crossroad for me was that when I finally realized I got to do this because it's what I love and it's how how I see the world because I look at people and I study people and I, mm-hmm. if I meet anybody, I will be the person to ask a hundred questions mm-hmm. and find out so much about them like we are, right? Actors do that. And then I have all that in my head. I have all that in my heart, all their, everybody's stories. So it's sort of how I go through life. But then when I studied, I, I decided I'm going to be an actor and I forced myself to study because I had been a dancer. And as a dancer, I think I loved the control I had. My hair was in a tight bun. The extension mm. was at a certain point, And there was a sort of right and wrong bodily in terms mm-hmm. of what you do. And then there's the calming balm of classical music. So all of it helped me, but not really as a performer. So I didn't study. I didn't I didn't start acting till I studied for two years. I didn't get into graduate school. So I, I did various, I did sort of a program for myself. But then when I started auditioning, I projected my whole history onto the casting people and the people in that room. So when I was in there, I kept on having sort of like the doomsday scenario and the stakes of getting rejected were so mm-hmm. high because it meant, oh, if that, if they reject me, this is so much psychology just coming in really quickly when I'm explaining to you. If they reject me, then I'm going to be blown up into the universe, maybe back to India. Like I'm just going to have to be 
thrown into some of the universe. So I would say a crossroads was when I realized that, when I realized, oh, it's not about that at all. It's about the little me who was playing and channel, channeling different characters who I felt were part of me and who I felt I understood and who maybe understood me more. So that was like a big thing in my life to just come to that realization. Can yeah. I ask how long were you separated from from your mom? So you and your sisters from are two to five for three years. Those are really formative years. Yeah. yeah, very formative. And I think there were all kinds of things that happened. I like I had an aunt who had um, anyway. They thought she had cancer. She had a leg removed, so she had a wooden leg. And when I learned to walk, I learned to walk with a limp because I just was following her. You so were following think, her gait. Yeah. Gosh. And then there was another moment where I think. There was all, all this stuff that happened, which, you know, you just process later on in life and you just separate. And I hope that anybody listening to this can either through therapy or whatever way you can sort of separate, figure out what the fear is as you're trying to move forward. So I think for so many years of my life, I've just been so afraid of just doing the acting thing and I and I wanted kids so badly and I remember there was a movie that came up that I was helping a film I was helping sort of develop and and it got postponed and there was a moment where I had to make a choice about whether I was going to try keep trying to get pregnant or stop because this movie I'm a big part movie and I thought oh my god just you know would I rather have a child or a film and then it was very clear but I did have a really weird thing happen I was in my 20s, I got an audition for a film, Canada in Toronto, an Indian film by this sort of hot shit young Indian direct, director. And I got cast and it was a big, like late female lead. And I was so psyched. First of all, let me just say, so my father, I didn't know. He left when I was two, I didn't remember him, but he was an actor. And once he became a big actor in England, he had the first, Indian sitcom in England called Tandoori Nights. He would send f- for my for our birthdays a glossy black and white headshot of himself. Oh my gosh! Okay. So so he oh becomes gosh. he becomes famous. Fame and all that stuff has really been complicated for me. And and, and also he's an amazing actor. I mean, quite a genius actor. Also a drinker, but an actor also. So I saw him on screen more than I did in real life. So cut to my 20s, I get this part. And the director said, so that we have two other actors. One is Roshan Seth, who uh, is a friend of my mother's from years ago. And he'd be playing your father. And then uh, Saeed Jaffrey, do you know him? And I thought, oh my I was gosh. like, well, my mother knew him biblically years ago. But uh, <laughs> so uh, I said, yeah, actually, he's my father. He said, oh. And he said, you know, I asked him if he knew any young Indian actors who could play. And I was like, oh. and let me guess. No mention. Anyway, so I got the part and I had to decide, okay, am I just, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And then in the end, his contract got swapped and he ended up playing all the male leads in in the film, including my father. Oh, my word. So that was. So you're sharing scenes with him. You're interacting with him in this way. As father and daughter. So did you just compartmentalize who he was to you in real life? Or did you just look at him as this sort of strange person anyway? Because at this juncture, all you really share is a last name. Like, what did that feel like? And some glossy headshots. Yeah, exactly. 
man, man Oshevitz. I think secretly I had, secretly I had a desire that maybe we would get to know each other a little bit. But the yeah. drinking kind of made that a little bit complicated. Were you hoping that he would be proud of you or say, oh my gosh, you're an incredible actress? Were you looking for that sort of validation? I think I had been warned that that would never come, that there's a narcissism yeah. involved, that that would not be the case. I mean, I'd been, I'd been raised by a stepfather. So like, it's not like I was looking for a father figure. Mm -hmm. It just, I guess I was hoping he'd find me interesting. <laughs> Maybe. And did that happen? Was there some sort of relationship formed during that um, No, not really. filming? No. no. And I think I, I really had to act. I did act those scenes. Were you able to watch the film once it was completed? I was. In fact, I didn't mind the other scenes. The scenes with him were sort of painful to watch, very, very painful. And yet he's a, he's a really good actor, but a very specific kind of actor. Mm -hmm. Like walk backwards out of a scene. So the camera. <laughs> <laughs> but genius. Like sure. I've never seen somebody seduce the camera like that. And the way he handles language. And I had a very different actor style. I have a very like American, internal, like have it be real. And, and yet there was a complete, you know, revelation for me to like, wow, that's just as good as what that, you know, you put that on and you do have your voice go up at this point and you walk, the camera stays on you and you turn this, you know, it all works in a it's way. It's a formula that works for him. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I think, uh, so just that, that complication of having a very conflicted relationship with fame and being able to figure out why I needed to be an actor in, in the positive sense rather than the negative sense. Well, you came onto my radar with a really special, but, you know, commercial film. It was Raising Helen. And the I know it laughs. It was like, what was it? It was early 2000s. And I'm watching for Kate Hudson, you know, because she's just adorable. And I love her outfits. And I love the idea. I mean, you know, I'm just <laughs> yeah. in that headspace, girl. Right? Yeah, yeah. And then this firecracker neighbor comes into the screen, <laughs> honestly, with a baseball bat. And you made such an impact. And I didn't know who you were personally, or I was not aware of your career, nor am I one to really follow an actor's career per se. Yeah, yeah. I just remember moments and nuggets <laughs> of time. Yeah. And that is truly, if you ask me what the film was about, <laughs> like, Gina, I'd be like, well, I remember there, you know, Kate Hudson, she, her sister died. She takes the children. They go back to the New York apartment and shenanigans ensue. And then there's this little mighty force of a, of a neighbor. <laughs> She's got gravitas. I mean, and when I was writing down words. Sometimes I write questions down to prepare for interviews, but a lot of the times it's just thoughts and words. And literally for you, Beneath is spitfire, native New Yorker, joyous, diminutive, but powerful, emotionally evolved. And I also wrote a deliberate life. Well, you know, I so appreciate those words because I always felt that that was the true me, all those things that I mostly was more comedy than drama. And I always feel as if like when I, I got my manager, who now is, you know, famous for being Viola Davis's manager, but she saw me in a play. She had another client in it. I was massively pregnant. I was a spitfire. It was George Washington's lecture. It was like completely retro play. Uh -huh. I was a, 
I was pregnant and I was a, a maid. And I came through the door. I kicked that freaking <laughs> door open. And like, I, I, because I was just my sense of humor, always physical, physical humor. And also like, I'm tiny. So, you know, we just, we have a so lot that's of funny. So that's funny. And, and I right. feel like the beautiful thing about raising Helen was again, it was a, a film that uh, Gary Marshall did. And he asked, my, he asked my kids to be in it too. And I said, it's you, Gary Marshall. So I will do it because otherwise they're not coming near this place. And what happened is he saw me chatting with people and saw my personality off camera. So in the scene where I bust up the party, it was completely improvised. And that man gave me the license to be exactly who I am. And I will say, hands down, it's my favorite thing I've ever done in my life because it was all improvised. And talk about bringing in all the influences because I barely speak Hindi, because I speak some Spanish, because I speak some Chinese. I Languages came out of my mouth that like weren't even the same language. And we had to, we had to edit it later because like I, I was, and curses and I was like, all this stuff came out. But mostly it was the, it was the people who suddenly trust you so much and give you, like it hasn't happened that often, but who give you such license to be exactly who you are. All the characters I've absorbed in my life watching people, I think they're so much a part of me and way more important than I am in my life. Just in terms of their stories are, I just, I can't even explain. That's why this, this pandemic has been so weird not to be able to just meet people and talk to them and, and, and in fact, I think some people find my questioning a little bit rude because oh, really? they feel like, yeah, because it's a little, act, I don't know, it's a, you can be feel a little put upon that people are just, I think people don't believe that you're, that people don't believe that you're honestly curious and honestly care. I think there's something to that because I find, you know, sometimes when you're, when you're talking to people and you're asking a lot of questions and you learn a lot about them and then you leave and realize they didn't ask a single thing about my life. And you wonder, am I just oddly curious? And I never thought of it that I was, you know, making them feel put upon, but I'm actually curious. I want to know, well, how do you think? Uh, You know, I think what's so interesting is on a number of shows I've been on, I always am curious whether the number one, number two, or number three ever ask you any questions about yourself. For listeners, what Sakina's referring to is on the call sheet, if you are the star of the show, they don't necessarily say the star, but you are listed as number one, number two, and number three. How long are you going to be on set? Who's carrying the show? And so that's what she was referring to with those. So I'm struck by the fact that almost always the number one, two, and three will never ask you any questions about yourself. Do you think that's because they might then have to also invest in the conversation in that way? And that what has led them to be number one, number two, number three, they've have to be a little guarded. They have to protect because perhaps that information has been used against them in some way by the press mm-hmm. or someone that they trusted that then I have found like the people that you so desperately want to know a lot about because they are in this place of power or position. And you think, how did they get there? Or I'd love to know their background or what makes them work the way they work. Um, I, I find it similarly that they're a little less interested in investing because it's, they've been burned in the yeah, past. I don't mean, I don't mean so much about asking them questions. I don't think they feel put upon uh, these people in particular. I think what strikes me is that 
that doesn't answer the question about why they don't ask you questions about your life. You're not waiting for them uh, to ask them. So I'm just saying that there, there's a reason why they are at that place because mm-hmm. they've been able to just get to that place, which is fantastic. And it helps like, it's great because they are oftentimes deserving and certainly able to carry a show. But I, that doesn't answer my question about why those people don't ask questions about you. It's sort That's of like, how was your weekend? Let me tell you about my weekend. Mm-hmm. That's <laughs> interesting. That is interesting. And I don't, I mean, I don't, it doesn't matter. I don't, I'm old enough. It doesn't matter. I just have noted it, you know? Yeah. Well, because you're curious about human nature. The other thing I wanted to say also, Stephanie, is in the same way that I have run away, I spent a lot of time running away and yet always been acting when I had the kids, like every year I would be doing a bunch of different projects and I wouldn't do the stupid projects. Even way back then, I was like, it's not worth it for me to be away from my children. I don't, I want their self-esteem to grow. And how does it grow unless they're becoming masters of something themselves? And then are they becoming masters in your absence? Are they become, doing all the Kung Fu and all the ballet and all that stuff without anybody watching them? So like, that's been very much a part of my thinking. The weird thing for me is chug along, chug along as I do. And then I am, I'll say this now, but I'm 50 and I get House of Cards. My first television series. Yeah. Right after, and and I mean, I was like, is it possible that it's all kind of worked out that I wanted my children to be old enough that I could be away? <laughs> I mean, mm. I don't know. It's like, sometimes I so feel like lucky star, lucky star. No, it goes also- back to a deliberate life. You yeah. made choices that led you there. My big takeaway from House of Cards was Sebastian Arcelis, my big keeper, <laughs> keeper, keeper. From he's dreamy, house. isn't he? Yeah, he's, he's dreamy. totally dreamy. And he was like, you know, just love. Well, you're love, you're love, both love, made love. of the same ilk. I think you're yeah, what do they call it? equally not, yoked. We're totally not bullshitters and we yeah. care. We honestly care about each other and other people. I think that's definitely true. Yeah. How did that role come to you? The role of uh, Linda Vasquez in House of Cards? I auditioned with uh, the fabulous Julie Schubert, but I did see Linda Powell outside of the audition room. Now, if you don't know, she's a fabulous actress. She's also the daughter of Colin Powell. And she grew up in Washington and she's extremely elegant, uh, smart woman. I saw her outside of that audition and she had like the look. So I came out of my audition. I saw her in the bathroom. I said, Linda, this is like your part. You go get it. So got to, I got it, but (laughs) I still felt like she was more right for that part. So I don't know what that was. It wasn't as if I was trying to run away from the possibility. I just didn't think anybody would see me that way. And I think people see me as much more, having much more authority and power than I do. So Mm -hmm. that's been an interesting thing just to sort of to acknowledge the fact that whatever, for whatever reason, even though I think I'm a goofball, people can see that with me. And then, you know, there was definitely some thought about, you know, why she cast as a Hispanic. And obviously right now I wouldn't be, nor should I be, but I would have to answer to people, I didn't cast me. Like, you know, David Fincher cast me. So one funny thing was that we were all laughing because Julie Schubert was giving us instruction when we were in the audition room. And she's like, don't wear red, don't use your hands and don't smile. And then when we were in the first car ride going to maybe from our first table read, we all started talking about our auditions, Sebastian and 
I cut, there were two other people in the car and everybody had been told not to smile. And then the topper was one person who said, smile, but don't smile. (laughs) (laughs) Do you feel comfortable speaking to the experience of working with David Fincher? What was that like to you? I have Seb stories and I have. Yes, I do. So basically what would happen is my heart was beating so fast. And, and what David Fincher does is he does 35 takes, 40 takes, Yep. not stopping. So it felt like you were in a marathon. You couldn't go to the bathroom. You couldn't go get water, whatever. You just have to keep on rolling, rolling, rolling. Mm. And I think I asked like the costumer to have like a snack in her bag for me because I felt like we couldn't leave. And then what David Fincher does is he comes up to you and talks in your ear. And I it felt like I had no idea what he was saying to me. I had no, I could not. And I was like, am I so nervous that I'm not it's not going in my ear. I'm not translating it. And I think he's actually just talking rubbish. I think he's actually just talking to you so that you stop being forced and stop being, um, in a weird way, I think he's trying to do something. Get you out of your head. Get you yeah. out of your head. It's like a strange You're, reset. So if I a, say, Shamanaba, if you're going to need what you're going to need, then you're focused on what that noise was. And then you do the next take and somehow yes. you're in a different realm yes. because it freed you of your sort of predisposition to I do think the that's same what thing. His goal was, I think. But I will also say that Fincher directed you in a way where, like, I remember this scene distinctly. Kevin is in there and he is profoundly distressed. And Fincher had Kevin stand up and then like look down. Basically he counted it out and then look back up. And then I thought, okay, what the heck was like that weird thing? That was not real acting. It wasn't natural or anything. And cut to year, you know, when it finally comes out, I realized, oh, he had him look down. And in that time he filled it up. That empty space was basically all the machinations of everything that he's going to think he's going to be doing that in this to get where he wants to go mm-hmm. just by simply looking down. He mm-hmm. had me look down at some point and look away and all that sort of like robot thing, but right. it, worked. it always worked. Because he knew how to craft it. He may not say this is the motivation as a No, he actor, didn't care about that. He's like, look down. <laughs> look yeah. down. And he then he the knew what to fill yeah. it. You know, my story with House of Cards, which... <laughs> makes me laugh, but it so speaks to who I am and the practicality of with which I have these conversations with Sebastian. So, so Sebastian says, you know, I actually want to audition for this thing. And right now at this point in our lives, we're living in Harlem. I'm doing eight shows a week. He's doing eight shows a week. And in comes this idea that he wants to do this computer show (laughs) that films in Baltimore, Maryland, but it's got Kevin Spacey attached. And that name, the connotation with that name meant something different, you know, a decade ago. Um, And David Fincher is directing and it's going straight to Netflix, of which I was like, Netflix, right, the mailing, honey, right. honey, is this yeah. worth it? I mean, we're going to be apart for something that's going to be on a computer. I mean, who's even going to watch TV on a desktop computer? What are you doing? <laughs> it's like, well, let me just try. Then he gets the part. And then I'm the old wet rag that's like, okay, let's do the pros and cons list because I just oh don't know where this God. show is going. <laughs> we're talking about House of Cards, which yes. was like the pioneer show for Completely. all streaming enterprises and i'm 
sitting there talking about the practicality and what does the money look like and how long are you going to be gone? And not an easy woman to love or someone you want to go to for counsel in your business affairs. Let me just tell you that much. Yeah. Do you use your mama lens, your mama point of view with most everything that you approach as an actor? Do you feel like I think that it's lens? in life I do. Yeah. I, I, no, in everything. In everything. I think I do. And I do end up being the one who's like, you know, on a set who like have the dinners and whatever. I just want everybody to feel like a family and it all to be like, you know, we're all here doing it, trying to do our best together. But I also think that I often find that I'm doing roles now where I'm not interested unless I can, it makes sense to me. And it often makes sense to me if I can even sort of force myself to see it through a mother or mama bear or protector lens. Mm. Interestingly, my kids, and I don't mean this in a negative way at all, have never been particularly interested in my acting career. They're not act, they're not performers at all. So it's a very separate thing. My life as a performer and my life as their mother. And even my, I mean, Frank, of course, sees everything and watches everything, but they don't necessarily. And I don't ask them to, because I don't want them to be like my creative, you need to, (laughs) you need to applaud what I do. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting. I definitely see other actors whose kids are much more engaged and maybe they're engaged because they are interested in acting, but my, I mean, I think the most engaged they were with was the first two seasons of House of Cards, where they actually were interested in the show and learning they about like politics. <laughs> I, I have to say this idea of this different type of parenting than we were clearly raised with. And, and I, I sometimes think that my children have been raised with the flip side of it. And that causes its own sort of problems. Like, yeah. you can do anything. We support everything you do is amazing. You are so talented. Uh, and I, I sometimes think that 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 and also having been in a marriage for 30 years, like they're sort of high standards in a way that I, I, I not that it's troubling. It's good that they are confident and believe that they can do stuff. But I, I think about it sometimes, I said, because it certainly left me with a rich life and, and a rich, a lot to grapple with, which made me who I am, right? Yes. So not yes. as if the struggle is, is necessary, but I do see that they look at me like, yeah, but you like everything I do. I was like, oh my God, can you care? Yeah. I said, and I don't, but I support you in everything that you do. There and it I is. do know That's you right. are so talented. I want to go back to, because I was just recently told about now being a mom and raising Vivian and how to encourage her without, you know, making her think because she's an only child that the entire world revolves around her. And so I was asking for a little bit of help to find the right words in doing that. And I said, you know, she'll come to me with these huge pieces of art and I don't care if it's one line or a piece of mud. I go, oh, this is, look at you look at the brilliance, look at the texture. And they said, okay, that's loving. Of course, a mother's going to say that. Now, how you can affirm her, continue the the growth is by saying, now you have a little empty corner here that's just speaking for you to add your art in this way. Or, ah, you chose yellow. What would happen if you added a little orange to that? So it's, it's constantly saying, I see what you're doing. I love what you're doing. Now let's just expand a little more. Same things with if they're performing or doing sports, you know, I'm like, yes, you were awesome. You were awesome. And instead of 
always affirming like you're the you're the best one on stage or look how you shine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's more like, man, as a parent, to see the joy you feel when you're doing that, that is the greatest gift for me. Right. Yeah, so yeah. I'm trying to use those words. I'm trying to think back on the drawings and stuff that my kids did. I think I, I remember asking them to tell me about it. Uh-huh. Like tell me about and I tried to stop saying amazing, I love, you know, I would usually say I love it. And then I was like, this is so what's happening here? Or you know what I mean? So I felt yes. like, then they are, I mean, obviously, you don't want to be asked all the time, like, and tell me about it. You're like, it's a fucking dot. It's a dot. It's a dot. <laughs> okay, that's it. I had a fun time doing it. But now it's over, right? Don't wreck it. And then they don't speak. And they don't speak meow. for two years. Exactly. Right. Right. So you don't want that. But uh, yeah, it's an interesting thing. There's definitely the overpraising. Because this is what my, my mother said years ago. She's a perfectionist and very type A. And and I was talking to her about a nutcracker I'd seen in my town. And I just wept through the whole thing. It was just uh, a town nearby, young people dancing. And then I said, I took Guppy and she really had enjoyed it. And she said, but you must take her to the nutcracker in New York City. And I said, yeah, I mean, whatever. I've seen it. It's magical. But sometimes I feel like there's no life in there. And these ones outside are just kind of just, uh, they, they fill me with joy. And she said, but where will she learn standards? So there's that, that I want so far away from my children because she grew up with that. Like there was a standard Mm -hmm. and there's something beautiful about knowing that you can reach for, you can always get better and it's a good feeling. You can always do something in a different way that gives you a different feeling. But this idea of there being a standard, and if you don't meet that standard, then everything else is shit. Well, I think when you say that, you're signaling that perfection is the goal. And perfection is not the goal. Joy is the goal. I totally agree. But I would say I have many friends, you know, maybe they're divas at the opera. Maybe they're, you know, where they say they're trying to say, just be joyous, just love what you do. And yet they're, practicing 17 hours and then, you know, yeah. like, so right. then what it's hard to translate that as a mm-hmm. kid, because yeah. there's, there's a, when they say, I didn't feel good about that or I, whatever, I don't know. It's like, it's a complicated thing. I think. And I think it's a very individual thing too. Some children's constitution can take a little more constructive criticisms than others. It's about building trust. If you're not really honest with your kid about mm-hmm. certain things at a certain age. Yeah. The feedback feels hollow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If everything's important, then nothing's important. And I think if you are honest in a very gentle way, you build trust so that when you do say that really was great, they believe you. You spoke about working with your father, but you also did a movie with your mom. Is that correct? Yes, I did two. Two movies. I, yeah, I did one that just had an anniversary recently. It was a Chutney Popcorn, a lesbian, uh, Indian lesbian film with Jill Hennessy. And it was fantastic. It's always been a fa- one of my favorite films. An NYU filmmaker who now is hot shit in Hollywood. I'm so happy to hear. She did a film her last year, her, her last se- semester, a full feature, her last wow. semester of graduate school. And it's like been one of the most important films in the gay and lesbian Asian network for so long I loved it so she played my mother in that one that was the first time and that was a bit of a shock it was just like your mother's on set and she's saying wait what do you what is that what are like you know that stuff mm-hmm. so I said oh, that's not so helpful how about you don't say that <laughs> before I shoot 
<laughs> but she was fantastic in it. And then the next time we did a Merchant Ivy film, the one where which we put off because uh, I was, uh, I thought, should we put it off? I'll just see what happens. I'll get pregnant. And I ended up doing it right after I had a baby. So I uh, got put off that long. And that was actually a much better experience because it was, you know, it's fun working with a really good actor and we had fun. We didn't play mother and daughter in that one. So I love that you champion these young filmmakers, you know, that are hitting heights. What are, what is your opinion now with that? So many young artists can create their own content, whether, and then they put it on YouTube or they can put it on. You know what? For years I've been saying to the young artists who ask me anything, the Indian ones in particular, I said, just create your own work, create your own work, create your own work. I mean, obviously I got that, that first show at the public theater because we knew Wally. I mean, I auditioned for it because of that, but I never, like I got my agent myself. Like I didn't, even though my mother was in acting, she didn't have any connections were never your end. Not in this, not in this country. And certainly my father didn't. So I felt like I was, I had nobody telling me, nobody guiding me as, you know, of course, all you guys who didn't have people in the arts had nobody guiding you. But so I am so happy to help these young actors and I say just write your own stuff write your own stuff and a lot of them have come back to me and said do you remember you were the one who told me I was like yeah Mr. Hotshot on two shows you know totally I love it but I will say there's also something to this generation and my kids too especially my daughter who have no tolerance for not getting what you know what they think is right and what they think they deserve so there's a whole other aspect to it where I feel like not not as if they don't deserve it, but they expect it. An entitlement? Is the, that, would that be the yes, right word? Yes, I would say for the annoying ones, it's entitlement. But for the other ones, it's more so like, yeah, I should be able to get a series. You know, so like for me, I never dreamt that big in a way. Mm. And I marvel at them. And like, I look at my parents, they all dreamt big. How else do you like become... I think both my parents are commander of the freaking British Empire. The Queen gave them a thing, you know, because like they just had that. And I was I was I never needed that, never wanted it. Particularly, I'm very grateful for the career I've had. You know, it's interesting to me just to have this moment, both with the awareness of, of Black Lives Matter and all this is that I think I went from public school in Greenwich Village, where it was just very multicultural and to a private school in 10th grade. Talk about like cross crossroads and I got put into this all white environment and mm-hmm. I got put into a world that was you know moneyed and all this stuff we didn't have money like we rented our apartment I slept in one bedroom with my two three sisters with three of us in one room like we just didn't have money and I think that my best friend from then when I was 10 said in the last couple of years I had no idea you were going through what you were going through at that time being mm-hmm. the brown girl at that school And I had no idea people said these things to you. And it's like, so the conversation is so much more open about Mm -hmm. what everybody, and of course, part of my show that I've written is also about the gradations of color and how that affected the brownest person in my household. It went out into the world and experienced the world one way and the world treated him one way. And then as the color, as we got lighter and lighter and lighter, the world just treated us differently, right? Mm -hmm. So this moment in time as as the conversation is out there and people are listening for the first time, I think it's going to just help artists. It's going to help people really be themselves. I think Agreed. it's going to help 
So for, for brown people, for Asian people, for black people, I think it's profound moment right now. And I, I don't feel like we'll go back. I think mm-hmm. it's just opening up the little bandaid for my best friend to say, I never knew that, that there was that wound there. I, and then yeah. the racial aspect of things being expressed and, and there being a, a initiative to listen, I think it's really going to help all of us in the world uh, right now. And I just, uh, that's very promising. It feels like a very promising moment for me. Hmm. Well, and it feels like you are taking part in that expansion and inclusivity because you said if Linda Vasquez were to pass, you know, your email right now and there was a breakdown for that, you would absolutely yeah. say, I'm with all due respect, this is not something absolutely. that I'm for. That really struck me when you said that. Yeah, because there's just so many talented people out there who can do it. And now it's time for the five questions. What would you tell your late teen or 20-year-old self if you could go back and speak to her? Get a handle on the facial hair. (laughs) As an Italian with a unibrow and a goatee, I totally, I'm with you. I support that. Okay. Are you a bleach? Are you a wax? Are you a pluck type of a laser? Well, back laser. then, uh, there's too much to laser, mama. No, too much <laughs> laser. no, but I didn't do it. That was my problem. So when I finally started doing it, I was a waxer and a threader. Oh. Now I'm these like Japanese microblady things. Yep. Oh, yep. Yeah, yep. Yep. Yeah. yeah. It's a good one. Yeah. I feel you on that one. Yeah. The really handle on the that. facial hair. Okay. If you could have any talent or ability, what would it be? Singing. Singing. Ladies. Mm-hmm. Would you tell us something surprising about you that very few people know? Well, okay. There's one which is so, I shared it recently because somebody asked me to do one of those 24 hour plays. Yes. And, and they asked me to do it and they ask you a secret, what's a special skill. And I actually incorporated it in my little play that I did, the monologue, whatever. And it's just that I can put my entire fist in my mouth. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, that we're not going to ask you to demonstrate. No, I cannot. Fine. And I have a big mouth and I yeah. cannot. Maybe you have a big hand too. Maybe I do. Okay. Okay. Do you have any good luck charm or ritual that you do before something important? Yeah. I mean, I think the only thing I, I sort of, do maybe it's even unconsciously is just to say how lucky I am and how blessed I am. Mm. I think maybe I do that. All right. Last question. If you were a nail polish color, what color would that be? And what would the cheeky little name of the polish be? If you could see the serious look yeah, on her really face. Very there's going to be like a dissertation question. on the nail polish color. Mm-hmm. So this problem, here's the problem. Uh-huh. That Too many this, I, I have to think about what color I would want on me or no, literally just to, if like, because that's, that's a, like your personality, personality. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Perhaps the cheeky name would be peach fuzz. <laughs> oh, baby. It's not peach fuzz. It's fucking forest. Okay. So Hundra. Like, whiskers. Yeah, Hundra. whiskers. Yeah, no. <laughs> I mean, I guess this is not quite it, but spunky sass. Uh-huh. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And what's the color? What's the color? And the color is kind of turquoisey. Oh, I would not 
I've guessed that. Not that I want to wear it, but I'm just saying other people That's... can wear it and think of me. Nice. I love it. Yeah, it really put to... the pressure on you on that one. Yeah, Sorry. it was really, I mean, I'm curious what other people have said now. It's, it speaks a lot. I'm prickly it's... pear. Oh, are you really? Yeah, uh, because I'm a little, you know, I'm a little prickly on the outside, but then I'm so sweet and sort of delicious and surprising when you get past the little kink, kink, kink. But then what did, what color was that? Like It was color? like a, yeah, it was, no, it was like a little green. Didn't I say it was like a slightish yeah, green like hue? Mm-hmm. Wow. And you, Marilee? Um, I was tie-dye earth mama. Oh, because yeah. I like all colors and I would just do like a tie dye nail polish. If that was possible. Yeah, that's nice. That's yeah. nice. People are surprised by prickly pear. Maybe I'm wrong. Does that, is that wrong? Have I classified myself into a nail color that doesn't accurately <laughs> portray me? Here's the thing. You're well, here's allowed the, to change your nail color. But here's the, yes, you are. Non-acetone here's the other people thing use is non-acetone. That, is that you can have a, have a nail color that's aspirational or rather your best self. Or you can have a nail color that is the kind you can't get off. That's mm-hmm. true. So I think uh, you kind of have to phrase, like you phrase it in a way you'd love to be this color. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. you went for the you went for the negative rather than the positive. See, and it's funny because I don't look at it as a negative. I think it's kind of great, like a Francis McDormand type thing. That mm-hmm. and that is the person who oh. is kind of like a don't don't mess with me. It's going to take a little effort to, but maybe that's what I'm projecting as to who I would like to be. That's you an know, interesting question. Like a B. Arthur. Oh, be Arthur. But that's more sass. She's total She's, sass. She's yeah. Too. Um, thank you for your time. Thanks for asking me to join. And now here's what struck a chord with us. Sakina. Sakina. Well, you wrote Figuring Out the Fear. And yeah. I, you know, I never looked at her ever as a fearful person. Ever ever, ever. But she talks about it, right? She sure does. She sure does. And when somebody recognizes that in themselves, then that's kind of always at the, um, the base of a lot of inspiration, whether you're holding on to that fear or whether you want to propel yourself outside of that fear. And I just think, I mean, we've already said it. She packs such a punch for this little person, but once you hear her life, And once you hear where she comes from and the strength that it takes to go on a plane with your sisters, your two other sisters, all under the age of six and live with your aunt and then travel back and the forgiveness and the flexibility. And yeah, sure, there may be fear there. And I don't want to invalidate what she is recognizing in herself, but my God, this woman has moved forward. She's literally looked at her parents in the face and shared scenes with them. And she's like, well, let's do it. I know most people would probably say, ah, thank you. With all due respect, this just may not be the project for me. Or I don't know if I would be spiritually ready to face a relationship you know, with my father that really only deems two years and sort of lending his physiology to make me and then that's it yeah and then you share work and space and emotions and oh that takes a lot of courage and strength a lot i mean first of all it just takes courage strength and vulnerability to do any kind of acting anyway but to then do it with the person who has such a trigger for you that's huge i guess you could look at it two ways is it 
masochistic or is it complete and utter courage and bravery? I I would choose the latter after speaking with her. Yeah, totally. I remember hearing this a long, long time ago and I can't remember where I heard it, but it was um, fear. F-E-A-R is just false evidence appearing real. So fear, there's two kinds of fear, right? There's the fear that's, you know, our frontal lobe that's protecting us since the caveman days from the saber toothed tiger. So we know to be afraid, but then there's the fear that literally we have just created in our own mind to protect ourselves from some emotional pain that we think might be there that might not even be there or some situation that we think we should be afraid of. And Really, it does hold value in certain places, but if you don't understand the different kinds of fear, you can really get lost in this. It's not even real. It's It's fake. It's this illusion that we've created for whatever emotional reason, and we cut ourselves off. And I bet you a huge percentage of our days and our lives and the choices that we make are based on things that we have been fed that aren't real. It may have happened to that person, and it may be their reality that doesn't mean it's your reality. Right. Right. The other thing that I just, it just made me love her was how deep she went on the nail polish question. Oh (laughs) my gosh. She literally analyzed every aspect of that question. And And she wanted to know what your answer was and then (laughs) wanted to analyze yours and mine of which then I, uh, after listening to the conversation, I went, well, maybe she's right. Maybe I'm not that color. I know. I want to maybe change I my do answer need to go the more positive route. <laughs> oh okay. I'm going to reconsider this. It, it was very on such a inconsequential, you know, we giggle because we pose this as the last question, but it has brought up a lot of ideas and people's feelings, but none like Sakina. This oh. was really an epic journey with a beginning, middle and end. <laughs> From every angle, every angle. It cracked me up. It cracked me up. I bet she's still home thinking about that question. So if this episode resonated with you, please follow, subscribe, and share. You can always find us at stagespodcast.net. We'd like to give a big thank you to our assistant editor and doer of all things technical, Saren Cho. Thank you, Noah Kaiserman and Garrett Healy for our beautiful original music, Melanie Von Trapp for our Stages Podcast logo, Ben Walding, our sound engineer, and Allison Arns, our PR and social media expert. And thank you, our cast members, for joining us today. We hope you come back next week.